you know, I wanted an experience and a journey that would stick with me and hopefully burn the last of, you know, my adventurous spirit out so that I could settle in and make money, which at that point seemed important. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, as the Tokyo Olympics are about to begin in Japan, I talk about the classic 750-mile hike around Japan's most rural island, known as the Shikoku Pilgrimage. This is a classic trek, one that might be compared to the Santiago de Compostela in Spain, and it follows in the footsteps of Kukai, a Japanese Buddhist monk and engineer who lived 1,200 years ago. Joining me in this conversation is Paul Barak, whose book Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains tells the stories of his own experiences on the Shikoku Pilgrimage. Together, we talk about what makes a pilgrimage different than other kinds of travel experiences and the seven rules of self-discipline Paul used to get the most out of his own hiking experience. We talk about where to eat and sleep on the journey and how this is a comparatively cheap way for travelers to experience Japan. We talk about Paul's challenges and misadventures on the hike, which included heat exhaustion, losing a ton of weight, and getting attacked by a boar. We talk about how pain is not an obstacle to the journey, but a core part of it, and how you shouldn't try and define the journey while you're still on it. We start by talking about how the Olympics lends a certain geographical notoriety to the places that host them, and why Paul wanted to do a pilgrimage in Japan. Let's listen in. This is an Olympic year, and the Olympics are in Japan. And for me, the Olympics have always been sort of this geographical primer like i learn more about i think everybody learns more about nations where the olympics are because suddenly they're this focus of interest um and so of all the places in the world to take a pilgrimage or to take a journey why did you choose japan uh because i've just always been kind of fascinated by japan you know i I grew up in the 90s and that's when you know ninjas were all over tv they were you know helping gi joe and living in sewers and eating pizza and i was just like well those are awesome like i also want to be able to disappear in a cloud of smoke and i guess behead the shogun uh so i just kind of was you know i can't even remember where i asked but someone's like oh yeah ninjas are from japan And I was like, what is this place? And then from there, I just never stopped being interested in Japan, you know, from like from ninjas, it became an interest in martial arts. And I eventually got a black belt in karate. It became an interest in Japanese history and Zen Buddhism and art and anime and just just cool stuff never stopped seeming to come from that country. So it just was kind of a lifetime interest. Well, it's interesting that the first cultural reference you make was a cartoon about turtles. Um, <laughs> and it makes me wonder what the Japanese make of people who whose genesis, whose original interest in their country had to do with a cartoon about Ninja Turtles. You know, I bet because anime has become so popular, I bet they're used to it at this point. Your approach to this pilgrimage in Japan, which we'll get into the details of it in a second, but I'm just curious, again, while we're while people might have the Olympics on the brain, is how much of it was about the physical effort of the pilgrimage versus how much of it was, your motivation, that is, is about just the conceptual idea of doing a long walk in the manner that you did in Japan? It sort of was this combination of having... Traveled when I was younger, you know, backpacked Europe after college and then having taught English in South Korea and finally just sitting 
at my desk thinking like, okay, well, I'm being paid better than I've ever been paid for any job at this one, uh, which still wasn't that much. Was and it? In, was this in Seattle? Were you back this, home? Uh, this was in Seattle, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just was thinking, you know, this can't be it. You know, this like if I'm gonna settle, I just need to do like one more thing. And I had originally wanted to teach English in Japan, but I didn't get in, so I'd gone to South Korea instead, and been able to visit Japan after that. But I wanted this time in Japan, you know, not just to visit Tokyo or Kyoto or like Nara again and, you know, do the typical, uh, do the typical tourist thing of, okay, well, I'm going to go look at that thing and then I'm going to go drink there. You know, I wanted an experience and a journey that would stick with me and hopefully burn the last of, you know, my adventurous spirit out so that I could, settle in and make money, which at that point seemed important. Uh, and so I just thought like, what would that be? And then this in a flash, I remembered this pilgrimage that I'd learned about back in college called the Shikoku pilgrimage, where you walk 750 miles around Japan's smallest and most rural Island and visit these 88 temples that dot the rim in and are placed, you know, in rice fields and beside the ocean and on mountaintops. And I just thought that's it. That's it. I will hike the Shikoku pilgrimage. Now is the Shikoku pilgrimage, uh, a well-known pilgrimage? Is it, is it like the Japanese Santiago de Compostela? I mean, yes and no. It's the Japanese, uh, uh, it's the Japanese compo because there's a couple of other trails, but I th- believe that the Shikoku pilgrimage is the longest, but it's also been said that more Japanese people have been to Paris hmm. than have gone to Shikoku. I mean, it, there wasn't even a bridge connecting Shikoku to the mainland until the 1980s. And when I arrived in Japan, um, for the first night I was staying with, uh, two friends of mine who were, Japanese, but had done karate with me back in Seattle. And when I got there, one of them was just like, so tell me again, how exactly did you hear about this? Because I've been telling my friends that you were coming to do this and they've never heard of it. Hmm. Is, is there an American equivalent of it? You know, we don't really have any pilgrimage walks. We have the Appalachian trail. I mean, is there... What would be the frame of reference if not the Santiago de Compostela? People drive in America, you know, like people drive or they take a tour bus. So maybe going and hitting all of the national parks, but I don't even feel like that truly represents what a pilgrimage is, which is this ritualized journey where you're trying to gain and practice spiritual insight and, you know, spiritual experience. Did you understand the pilgrimage as a, on the conceptual level before you did it? Or was it more of, this is kind of cool. I like walking. I'm going to do it. I would not recommend my approach to anyone, which was doing absolutely no research and then just, you know, fantasizing about fighting a monk on a mountaintop. But, uh, 
I went in being very uh, respectful of the journey. I mean, I would be reciting prayers I didn't understand and, you know, in a language I didn't speak, which, you know, I was kind of used to having grown up Jewish. Um, but I also fully invested myself in the idea. You know, I bought the stamp book. I wore all the pilgrimage garb. I did not drink the entire time. I did not use an electronic device except for a camera and a voice recorder that I would uh, use for my journal that night. Uh, I really took it seriously as a spiritual endeavor. I meditated multiple times a day. Yeah, I, I want to uh, dig a little bit into the uh, your list of I think it's like seven things that you decided were going to sort of structure your discipline mm. on the trip, um, w- which is interesting because like historically pilgrimages, at, at least in Europe, oftentimes people who went to a pilgrimages, be it to Canterbury or Rome or Santiago or Jerusalem, it was like the only time they ever left their village. It was they had a life with almost no choices, and so a pilgrimage gave them choices. The modern pilgrimage seems like a little bit of an inversion, you know, that that we have these digital devices where we can leave, we can go anywhere we want in our minds all the time. And in a way, we have too many choices. And the pilgrimage gives us a choice to have a very prescribed route that doesn't allow us to just run off in any direction specifically. So I'm curious to know a little bit about these seven categories of discipline that you chose, which I understand it as no music, no running, no booze. You were going to keep a journal. You were going to practice meditation. You were going to go through all the rituals at the temples, which is sort of a challenge. We can get into the specific rituals of the Shikoku pilgrimage in a second. And then um, just enjoy yourself. The reason I chose those were because they were things that I had either done on previous trips that had taken me out of the experience or just things in my life that I felt like – are distractions, you know, like I have had earbuds in my ears for most of my life, just because I also have ADD and I need constant stimulation. And so no music is like, just be in the moment, you know, like experience what you're going to experience. This is a journey and it's an epic journey. So, you know, invest yourself as much as you can in making it more epic. You know, no running was don't speed by this, you know, take your time and really take it all in. This is a big thing. It's like appreciating a work of art. Uh, no booze was, yeah, just because, you know, I drank a lot back then and I wanted to say, be here, you know, don't just escape from it no matter what happens. Uh, the daily journal entries were because I'd, uh, tried keeping a journal when I was in South Korea, uh, and just fell off, you know, um, it's hard to keep a journal every day. It, it sucks a lot of the time. And, but when I got back, you know, I suddenly looked back on my experience in South Korea, which had been you know, not the best one, but still formative and interesting and something I never would, you know, regret. And I realized I'd forgotten most of it, you know, like not the, not the big parts, but just like, what was the day to day like, Hmm. especially when you're 
when you suddenly remove yourself from this very different experience and you lose all the frame of reference that you used to have, you know, like seeing a street where something happened, you lose that reference. And so you, your brain just doesn't get triggered for the memories. And so I was like, I don't want that to happen again. This is a big trip. I want to make sure that I have the story, you know, I'd, not necessarily to write a book at that time, but just to have the record of what I did. Let's talk about the cultural specificity of the Shikoku pilgrimage. Um, why it, it's 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 unique in a certain sense in that it's not a linear pilgrimage, pilgrimage that it's a, a circle around an island. Mm. Um, who goes on this journey? How many years has it been going on? And why specifically this journey on this island? So, yeah, so I just want to address the the circle thing, which I think is so cool because each part of the, the Shikoku is divided into four regions. Shikoku means four regions, which are Tokushima, Kochi, Ehime, and Kagawa, and each of those represents a different level of spiritual growth. So Tokushima is the land of awakening faith, Kochi is the land of ascetic training, Ehime is the land of enlightenment, and Kagawa is the land of nirvana. And so as you, as you visit the temples and as you pray, you are spiritually progressing along the four regions until reaching the end, Temple 88, in the land of nirvana. But then you symbolically return back to the land of awakening faith to remind you that the spiritual that spiritual progress is a ever-present thing that you always must circle back to. And so the pilgrimage, as loosely arranged, is about 1,200 years old, a little over that. But it really started to solidify around the 16th and 17th century uh, when road building got a lot better. So you could start linking all of the temples. Hmm. And when people walked the pilgrimage, they carried this book called a stamp book. And this was sort of your passport to show that you were walking around visiting all of the temples and getting the stamps, uh, which is calligraphy and some actual stamps rather than, you know, that you were a spy or something. Who typically did it historically and who does it now? Historically and typically, it is people who have generally finished work, so a lot of retirees do it, or it's people who have a little bit of time. So people just out of school or people who deci are deciding to change their career. Um, that was most of the people I met. And if the modern day pilgrimage is not really walked anymore. Uh, most, uh, the vast majority of people who do it go on these two week bus tours where the buses go from temple to temple. Everyone files off. A priest leads them in prayers. Then they go to the stamp office. They get all of their uh, stamp books and their scrolls stamped and uh, calligraphied pretty much assembly style. And then, you know, pile back into the bus and move on to the next one. And then they either stay at lodging called Ryokans along the way, or they'll stay at temples. But about, at least when I did it in 2010, about a hundred people every year actually just decide, Hey, I'm going to walk it. 
and they get, uh, they're shown a lot of respect by the people, uh, by the locals of Shikoku. Like there's a tradition of giving gifts called Osetai because as you are hike, as you are walking the pilgrimage, Kobodaishi or Kukai is traveling alongside you. You know, that it, your the vest that you wear announces that two are traveling as one. The staff that you carry represents Kukai and has to be, the bottom has to be wiped reverently and it has to be placed in a corner whenever you bed down for the night. And so for the locals, giving a gift to you, like uh, a piece of fruit or an ice cold coffee or a water bottle, is giving an offering to Kukai. It sounds more formalized than like the the Camino in Spain in that there's sort of a required uniform and that at each place there's required rituals. Do you do you have to have an understanding of the religious significance or can you sort of pantomime your way through? Uh, I mean, I definitely pantomime my way through. <laughs> um, I, I had a brief, you know, I, I, a surface level understanding of, you know, you go to the temple, then there are these two uh, statues called the Neomon. They're the heavenly kings and they're very fearsome looking. They kind of look like DC comics villains. And uh, so you bow to them before you enter and that shows reverence. And also they scare off ghosts uh, that are attached to you. So then you walk in, you ring the temple courtyard bell that announces your presence to the deities inside. You wash your mouth out with a tin dipper to cleanse yourself. And then you go through the set series of prayers. You mentioned in the book that, it, that this ritual, this prayer and chanting ritual is about 15 to 20 minutes per temple. But with 80 temples, that's like more than 30 hours of total ritual. Uh did yeah. you did you always do the ritual? Were you tempted to skip it? How did that work? I always did the ritual. Um, I mean, there were times when I was like hurrying through it and I kind of wish I hadn't. But yeah, it was important to me. Do the ritual, get every stamp, you know, be here and do this. Uh, devote yourself to the ritual. Maybe it'll maybe it'll pay off, you know, maybe I'll learn something from the ritual or it'll make more sense later. And even if it doesn't, again, it was trying to show respect to this ancient pilgrimage that I was on. I was trying to, you know, be as reverent as I could. Well, I think that there is, when you think about something like this, you think of lush forests and the tinkling of bells and the beautiful vistas of other places, but I know from your book that you had some misadventures and difficulties on your <laughs> journey. Given your preparation and expectations for the journey, uh, how did it play out in reality? Well, let's see. In reality, uh, given that I did almost no preparation, uh, it was the hottest summer on record. My shoes didn't fit, and so every step was painful. Uh, I didn't know how to read a map when I started. I didn't speak Japanese. Uh, day one, I got charged by a boar. Uh, day three, I spent six hours collapsing from dehydration while hiking up to a really fittingly named Burning Mountain Temple. Uh, two weeks in, I spent a night hiding from guards in a toilet stall because I was uh, I had heat exhaustion and couldn't think straight. Uh, about a month in, I broke part of an ancient temple, which in retrospect, uh, 
was fine because it's old it's old wood in a rainy place. Like they replace that wood all the time. But for me, I was like, Oh God, I don't know how much ancient temples cost. <laughs> and so I sped off and, uh, it, because karma works, I then got a leg, I had cut my leg when I fell and then had a three day leg infection. That also was a three day panic attack of me trying to convince myself that it was just sunburn. Uh, and then, uh, in the most awesome thing that ever happened to me, I actually did get into a karate match with a priest on a mountaintop temple at dusk. Right. Well, the, the name of your book is um, is Fighting Monks Burning Mountains. And while you didn't actually burn any mountains yourself, you did fight monks during this. And I, I want to get to that in a second, just because that's pretty idiosyncratic. Um, but let's go back to day three, when you were basically collapsing from dehydration, I guess a big question here is, were you tempted to quit during that day or any other ones? Day three, I was the most, I think I was the most scared. I was the most tempted to quit the next day because I was terrified of going through anything like that again. Um, yeah, it, it was, I was, you know, walking 50 steps and falling back down to the dirt. I'd never been that tired before. Like I, I, you know, been an athlete for a long time and I had never experienced that level of exhaustion. And it really took, you know, part of it was just not wanting to go back home and tell my friends like, yeah, I know I've talked about this nonstop for the last six months, but it was, it was really hard. So, uh, anyway, I'm back, you know, I'm, I've got too much, uh, pride and stubbornness for that. Um, but yeah, it was scary. It was scary to be that weak. It was scary to not know when I would reach the temple, but I had a moment where I was like, look, I came here to hike this and I don't know if I'm going to pass out. I don't know if I'm going to die, but I am going to not stop. I will reach this temple. Were you tempted to jump on the buses that must've been going by fairly regularly the next day. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Cause I was in a Valley surrounded by other mountains and had no idea if anything, if the pilgrimage would just be like that. And what about the day by day? I mean, where did you sleep? You said you couldn't read a map. How did you get around? Uh, what were the practicalities like as you were sort of taking a crash course in Japanese pilgrimage? Um, I mean, I eventually got better at reading the map, uh, cause it's very, it's very well designed. There's a map book that you can get on uh Shikoku and I recommend that website. Uh, great place to start. Um, but the pilgrimage is also like really well marked, you know, it's, there are these, uh, bollards that are either wood or stone that have an arrow pointing, uh, the direction at pretty much every crossroads to the next temple. They also have the, you know, uh, Western number of the temple on it. So I was able to kind of follow those people have put stickers with arrows on, um, lamp posts and light poles. And so you're able to follow a lot of it and, you know, every, every local knows the pilgrimage is going through. So, if you look confused, which I did constantly, uh, they knew to just point. Hmm. And I'd be like, ah, you know, arigato. 
Well, I know that you had some issues like being prepared food-wise, that uh, you sort of dropped weight pretty quickly at the very beginning of the journey. Um, is there like a Lonely Planet Shikoku? I mean, how did you know where to eat and where to stay, and, and how did that work? So I basically would just tent down wherever seemed okay. But the nice thing is uh, even – so there are Ryokans all the way around – um, your stamp book or your map book gives you a lot of good info and there were, and is a Ryokan like a hostel or a, a guest house? What is a Ryokan? Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. A uh, Ryokan is, um, it's like an inn. Okay. Um, and there are plenty around Shikoku. They, uh, you know, it's, it's the tourism trade for them. So you show up anytime before five o'clock, uh, they'll give you dinner. Uh, you get your own futon to sleep on. You wake up the next day. They give you breakfast, and you're out on your way. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money, so I was ca- uh, tenting down almost every night. Um, and there are these little um, shelters that have been built by the uh, by each city. Uh, so kind of like a little rest hut. It's got a roof. It's you know open walls. Uh, but a little bench. And so there was a place you could either like, you know, if you were really roughing it, you could sleep on the wooden bench. I usually just set up my tent, uh, below the roof, especially it was godsend if it was raining. And other than that, uh, walking pilgrims get, uh, there's free lodging that walking pilgrims get. It's, you know, it's everything from, uh, someone's, you know, mother-in-law unit behind their house or sometimes it's just, you know, a creaky old garage with roaches and, uh, you know, a mattress with, uh, with cardboard laid over it right behind the temple. But those were all of the places that I could stay. And I printed out a list of the, uh, it's called Zen Cognado. And so you can stay those places. And sometimes if you're a walking pilgrim, the temples will let you stay there because walking pilgrims, uh, just get a lot of respect for how challenging walking the pilgrimage is. Do the temples feed you as well, or are there restaurants along the path? Um, there's some restaurants along the path. I definitely got to eat some of the best ramen I've ever eaten in my life. Um, but for the most part, I was feeding myself either through grocery stores or uh, convenience stores like Konbinis. Um, they're just levels above what you would get in a 7-Eleven. Like, you know, you can get sushi there, you can get soup, um, you can get sandwiches. It's actually really good food. I ate a lot of that. But for the first three weeks, uh, I don't know why. I just could not find any grocery stores. So I ended up dropping, I believe, around 30 pounds, uh, like 10 pounds a week, because I was also burning, you know, five, to 6,000 calories a day. And I mean, sometimes dinner was a packet of dried squid and two bananas because that's all that there was. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about the budget. I mean, Japan is, is a fairly expensive place by reputation. Between the, the, the grocery stores and the free lodging, were you able to travel pretty cheap? Yeah. Yeah, I was able to travel really cheap. Uh, as long as you're not paying for lodging, uh, I would say the whole trip cost me about 
three to four grand, including flights. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, so it's a budget trip. Yeah. Yeah. If you plan right. And I think especially if you uh, plan your food a little better than I did, you could do it on a budget hmm. and you know, people set up tents all over. It's just kind of, I mean, don't be, you know, don't, don't set up your tent in, you know, someone's field or someone's yard, especially without asking, but there are plenty of places to tent down and it's just sort of accepted that, yeah, these are pilgrims. Who did you meet in uh, travelers and local folks alike? And how did you deal with the language barrier? The people I met along the way were mostly other walking pilgrims. Uh, some of them spoke a little bit of English. So I was able to, you know, understand like, yeah, no, I work in advertising and this is our honeymoon. You know, we're going to walk only one section. Um, I met, the, I, I didn't have a full conversation in English for, I think, two to three weeks. I met this uh, kid named Emilio who was a, you know, Japanese local, but had worked in an Italian restaurant where he learned English. So I was able to actually have a full conversation. And that was, uh, you truly don't know how much you miss speaking to people until you can't. Hmm. Uh, it was like reviving, you know? Felt like I'd been like I'd had a B12 shot the next day because you miss those interactions. And later on in the pilgrimage, uh, I was lucky enough to meet the uh, first Westerner um, right when I was, you know, dealing with my leg infection and had someone else to look at my leg and be like, yeah, that's not sunburn. You should go to the hospital like now. Huh. Uh, and uh, I also traveled alongside this older nurse for like a couple of days who was helping wrap my leg, you know, just whenever I ran into her. Uh, but for the most part, I dealt with the language barrier just by getting through. I mean, the, you know, in my own idiocy, I just figured like, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's Japan. They, they learn English in school. And I didn't think for a sec, like, you know, if somebody came to America who spoke only Spanish and I had to help them using my high school Spanish. <laughs> Could I do anything? <laughs> and pretty much no. Like, I think, you know, in that same situation, all I'd be able to tell them was that the shoe store is to the left of the library. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, so it was tough. I mean, the I think the only conversations I really had was uh, – uh, Atsui desune, hai atsui, which just means hot, isn't it? And you're like, yes, hot. <laughs> and uh, then other people would ask, like, where are you from? And I would say Seattle. And they'd say, Shiatri? I'd be like, Seattle. They'd say, Shiatri? And uh, then I'd be like, well, I can't pronounce the place I'm from, I guess. And so then I'd swing my staff and say, Ichiro, because I knew they knew who Ichiro was. And they would say, oh, Ichiro Suzuki, Seattle Marina. And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd be like, bye. And then they'd be like, bye, because that was the only other conversation. Right. It's not like we could move on from that opener. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, I guess that's a, an ongoing challenge of, of travel in a place where the, your, your native language is not spoken. Another interesting travel moment was that moment where you got your leg fixed. 
Um, and I could relate to it just because the cost compared to the United States was sort of surprising. Can you can you talk a little bit about what it was like to get this this wound that you had sort of sort of hidden from people and, and tried to get better for a long time when you actually went to the doctor, what happened? Yeah. So again, like I'm convincing myself it's sunburn because I'm like, yeah, sunburn sometimes makes your leg leak. That ha- that happens, right? Huh. And it only happens on one leg and sunburn spreads up your leg. Uh, so yeah, I was in denial because I was like, okay, you did not just bankrupt yourself and basically, you know, like lose all your money on this trip because you chose not to take the stairs. Like you are an idiot. And then, you know, finally they were like, that's infected. You need to go to the hospital. I'm just like, God damn it. So I, you know, I go to the hospital, I check in, I have no travel insurance. The doctor takes a look and he's just like, you know, infection. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And he's like, how did you hurt your leg? And I, for a moment, I was like, it wasn't by breaking an ancient temple, if that's what you're asking. So I was just like, you know, I fell and then he just nods and he's like, okay, well, here's some antibiotic cream. Here's some antibiotics. And I'm just wait and I'm just watching the bill print up at the front counter. And I'm just like, Jesus. And I take a look and I'm like 70,000 yen. Oh God, no. And then I do my calculations and I'm like $67. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck the American medical system. Yeah, no, I've had experiences like that in in France and India and other parts of the world where it's just like you, as an American, you dread the doctor because you don't know how much it's going to cost. And then it's actually quite reasonable. So, Yeah, yeah. It's what healthcare should cost. Yeah. (laughs) So that was one of uh, sort of breaking a temple, although I guess you broke a very replaceable part of a temple, got a leg infection. Uh, another big anecdote from this is fighting a monk. So tell us the story of how you came to have sort of this, um, theatrical to my mind, uh, spar with a monk at a temple in Japan. Sure. So, uh, just to Mm -hmm. circle back to the title, uh, before I go into it. So the reason I picked fighting monks and burning mountains is, it, the title is the sort of dichotomy of this journey that I went on. You know, it was this idea of having this epic, you know, in my imagination, martial arts fueled adventure in this ancient land. And then there was the burning mountain, which was the reality of I'm not prepared. It's I'm in over my head. Like I'm collapsing from dehydration, hiking on burning mountain. And so, you know, by the time, uh, it's about three, it's about, you know, 31, 32 days in, and I'm very much on the like burning mountain side of things where it's like, I was not prepared. I've, you know, I've made it through. There's been a lot of bad stuff that's happened, but this has also been great. And that's just the reality. And then I get to this, uh, mountaintop temple at dusk, I believe, uh, is Unpenji, the temple of hovering clouds. And so I go up to the, uh, I go up to the, uh, main shrine and I say all of the prayers and go through the ritual. And then the priest is there, uh, signing the stamp books. And he was sitting by while I said the prayers and he said, Oh, you, you know, and 
some English. He said, oh, you said the prayers really well. And I'm like, oh, awesome, because I can't even pronounce the name of the city I'm from here. And uh, then he's like, uh, why are your arms so big? And I'd been, you know, practicing karate for four years. I was training up for my black belt, but also because I'd lost so much weight, I looked like Bane with cancer. And so I, and you know, I didn't know the Japanese for, I can't find a grocery store. So I just said, I do Kyokushin karate. And he said, oh, I do Gojuru, which is a sister style of Kyokushin. And he says black belt. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Brown belt. And so I look at him and he looks at me and I just raise my fists and I say, kumate, which means fight. And he says, kumate. So he takes off his his, uh, priest gear. I take off my pilgrim gear. We square up. And for like 15 minutes, we have this, you know, really intense sparring match in the courtyard of a mountaintop temple at dusk on a, on a, you know, spiritual Buddhist pilgrimage on Shikoku Island, which was, you know, my dream. Right. (laughs) Is, is that your favorite moment or is there, is there something more esoteric that you remember the, the strongest about this journey? That's definitely the moment where I'm like, look, if I'm not a like really beloved husband and devoted father, just put fought a priest on a mountaintop on a pilgrimage on my tombstone. Um, but there were so there were a ton of moments on the pilgrimage that just stick with me. Like I remember the ramen. Like I went to I ended up walking through this, I guess local, you know, like carnival slash festival, and they had this huge table of just ramen. And so I got to eat it and I was like always starving and it was just the richest, like most tasty broth that I've ever had in my life. Hmm. Like it's, it, it, uh, was one of my favorite meals of all time. Uh, there was also this one night where I finished the prayers and then I looked over and in this one temple courtyard, in so, it was something that was not mentioned in my map book. It was a curiosity until I finally looked it up. But there were these, it was a courtyard of these 500 life-size statues. And they were all like grotesquely carved and animated. Like one guy was a soldier. One guy had a pet rat. One guy was a drunk. One old man was holding a dragon. And they were all individually carved. There was none of them was repeat. And they were all like cartoonishly grotesque, but still really evocative. And so I just wandered through these statues at dusk with no idea what I was looking at, but it was just magical in its mystery. And it turns out those were, uh, they were called the uh, Rakan, the 500 original followers of the Buddha. But I just, I, I remember that part as being just so... Uh, like you said, idiosyncratic, but also like there is so much mystery here. And then, uh, there were also, you know, times where I vividly remember, you know, after spending, I think a month of meditating every day, meditating while I was walking, meditating like three times a day. And I had what I can only describe as a hundred percent sober mushroom trip where I was just walking and suddenly like I felt reality shift in a way. 
and suddenly like everything was clearer. Like everything had just sharpened into HD. You know, the grasses next to me felt the exact same as like this little mound at in the distance of a rice field. And I could see exactly where I was like both in the rice field and, you know, a little higher up than that, but also was still in my own body. And, uh, I don't know. It was really hard to explain, but it was just this feeling of connection. Was it the result of the pilgrimage? Could you have gotten it had you not walked? What do you think was the, was the texture of that little epiphany? I think I had to be walking and meditating as much as I was and as undistracted as I was for the entire time. It, it came on and left one or two more times. Um, and nothing really preceded it or, you know, nothing really came after it, but it was definitely a very strong experience. And I think I would, and it's not like I've really had it since. So how do you look back on it? How has it informed your life? Um, do you have any, any regrets, anything you would have done differently? Um, what made it so worth the experience that you ended up writing a book about it? Um, I think my only regret, I think my only regret is that my shoes didn't fit. Uh, I wish I had, if for anyone who's going to do it, you need road walking shoes. Uh, I think the main issue was that I had a, a rock plate in my shoes. And so like rock plates are not good when you're walking on concrete cause your foot is just bashing into metal. Um, so I was hurrying a lot more on the pilgrimage than I would have if my, you know, if every step wasn't painful. Um, I wish I'd taken more time with it. Uh, other than that, no. And I mean, even with the shoes hurting, it gave me moments of challenge that I needed to confront. I mean, at the end of the land of ascetic training, uh, I, you know, after walking half of the pilgrimage with my feet hurting every day, having to like bandage up and drain blisters and, you know, the other three time a day ritual besides meditation was foot care. But I also just kind of came to the realization that like the foot pain is not keeping me from this pilgrimage or from any spiritual insight on this pilgrimage. The foot pain is part of it you know, and I need to accept that into myself and just say, okay, this is a part of it. And this is what my experience will be. And so just move past that and stop wanting this to be different. And I think that, um, the main takeaway that I got from the pilgrimage, which came later was don't define your journey while you're still on it. I think that's the big thing that I've taken to uh, bicycling across the United States and uh, hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and hiking the Colorado Trail and all of these journeys that I've been on since. I just think, you know, be open to it. Don't think that this is going to be one way because then you're only going to be looking at your journey 
as does it get me closer to blank or further away from blank rather than accepting the journey as it is and saying, what is this teaching me? What am I, what can I get from this every day? And I think that was one of the big changes for me. And the other one was just realizing like, I'm not done traveling. I'm just starting. And so, you know, I decided you need to save up and be responsible and then leave this office job that you clearly hate and don't come back to it. And so, yeah, it was sort of the start of this next round of journeys for me. And I can honestly say that, you know, I've hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. I've been to, I've hiked up to the highest point in the lower 48 states and nothing has ever been as challenging as that third day when I was collapsing from dehydration on Burning Mountain ever since. I, things have been hard, but nothing has ever been as physically and mentally grueling as that. And, you know, knowing that I would continue the pilgrimage the next day, making that choice has given me a lot of confidence that, yeah, something comes up and it seems impossible and I get through it. You'll continue. Is this the kind of journey that you would recommend to other people, specifically this Shikoku journey? And if so, what besides uh, better shoes and keeping your expectations open would you tell the people who are considering it? Um, I would tell them, like, number one, buy a copy of my book so you can learn what not to do. Uh, but the other thing I would tell people is go into it with the full reverence that it deserves. Hmm. Um you might not get anything out of the repeating the prayers, but I honestly did, you know, like not necessarily from the meaning of the prayers, but just from the repetition and from the ritual. And I honestly feel like it gave me, uh, you know, a spiritual energy that I felt after the pilgrimage. You know, I still sometimes recite the prayers and it takes me right back. Uh, I'd also say keep a journal, you know, but I think everyone should do that whatever journey you go on because you will look back years later and wonder like, why did, why do I do things differently now? Or like, why, why do I think differently? And when you're reading your journal, you will see yourself in real time sort of figuring things out that stick with you years after. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Paul Barak's book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>